Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
girlfriend or woman hardly ever will cook without garlic. Fresh garlic is, you know, it's an antibiotic and it will make the food taste better and smell better, but also it will take care of your stomach. Isha Sumner is the founder of Wega, a catering company that serves traditional Garifuna food. But before we hear from Sumner, I chat with Ruth Rogers, the chef and owner of the River Cafe. Started as a local commissary for a complex of offices on the Thames, River Cafe has trained many of the top chefs in Britain and has also popularized simple Italian food. Her new cookbook, River Cafe 30, has just been released and features both new and classic recipes from the cafe's long history. Ruth, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Good. I I went to the River Cafe, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. and it took quite a while to get there on the tube from downtown London, but it was a marvelous location and a marvelous dinner. But you started really as a uh, a sandwich place, I guess, a commissary. In your introduction to your new book, 30 Years of the River Cafe, the quote is, the River Cafe and its clientele are seriously diminishing the tone of the area. <laughs> do you want to do you want to just explain uh, what that meant? Yeah, when, when we started the River Cafe, really it was the site of what used to be uh, an oil refinery in London on the river with boats outside. And, and my husband, who is an architect, was we were, lived in Paris for uh, five years when he was doing the Pompidou Center. And when we came back to London, we wanted to find a place that could be a community so that he could set up his architectural practice again in a place so we, there was a mix. So there was an outside space. As I said, we were on the river. They converted these uh, warehouses into rather beautiful studios and offices. There were picture framers, model makers, dress designers. And always we always wanted to have a place where people could eat. And I was working as a graphic designer and had always cooked. But when the applications came in, we thought, you know what, Why? the only thing worse than not having a restaurant would be not to have a very good one. And I just said, I think I'll do it. And I'll do it with Rose Gray, who's an old friend and had also come back from New York um, wanting to do something. So the two of us came and looked at the, the site and it was tiny. It was um, enough for maybe a bar, tiny little kitchen, and six tables. But the real restriction was that we were only allowed to be open for lunchtime because the neighbors who'd actually had oil warehouses here um, were up in arms about the idea of a small restaurant. So the planners that said we could only be open Monday to Friday, we could only be open for lunch, and only open to the people who worked in these <laughs> warehouses. So that's where the sandwich bar, that's where the inexpensive, very tiny little place started. But I think Rose and I always had the ambitions to be an Italian restaurant, to be a proper restaurant. We just had to do it gradually. Here's a question. Sometimes you just leave something alone. Like in your book, very often you, you don't add a lot of strong flavors to something that has a wonderful flavor to begin with. You have a Dover sole recipe with capers and marjoram. Dover sole is often served with, you know, brown butter or just in butter, something very simple, olive oil. But capers and marjoram are very strong flavors. Is that 
how do you know as a cook when you want to add strong flavors to something and other times you don't? Is that something that's just whimsical? Um, or? I think it depends. Well, first of all, it sort of depends on your mood. Sometimes I come into the River Cafe because, you know, we change the menu twice a day. And if I have Dover Sole on the menu, I might think, well, what am I going to put with the Dover Sole? I might just put lentils with it today. And therefore, I might like something interesting on the top, like capers. So I think as a cook, the first thing I think about when I write the menu is what what do I feel like eating today? What would I want to eat? Mm. And that's one of the joys of working in the River Cafe, or I think, I hope, coming here. So I think as, you know, the same thing we say, if you're cooking at home, you know, what what do you feel like eating? And also not to go shopping with a, a recipe in your head, but go to the market, go to the supermarket, go to a shop, see what's there, and then, you know, go home and cook it. You know, a lot of chefs do a lot of different things. Jose Andres has 23 restaurants. Uh, Jeremiah Tower obviously, you know, moved around and started things and closed things. Uh, You've been doing this 30 years or so. Uh, Alice Waters has been doing her gig for 40 years. Do you have a feeling about people like yourself who stick with it, who start something and just keep getting better at it versus people who move around? Do you think one is better than the other? Why why do you love for 30 years doing this one thing? And it obviously still excites you by the way you're you're talking about your restaurant. That's a good question. I I think that it depends. For me, it's about ambition and control. You know, so I really... I've, I've been asked to do other restaurants. I've looked at other sites. We came very close to doing another restaurant a couple of years ago in Mayfair. And I'm always thinking about how to grow, how to, how to be better. And sometimes I think that, for me, it's about being better where we are. It's about, you know, every day I come in with a set of problems or, or thinking about what to cook and how to make the restaurant more beautiful and how to make the waiters more knowledgeable and how to work with the chefs who want to learn more about ingredients and how to make our pastry kitchen better. You know, there's so many, so many things to do in the restaurant here that, you know, would it be possible to do it and have more? Some people really can do it. For me, it would be really just so important to know that I, if I did another restaurant, that it would be as good as this one and this one wouldn't you know, get less good because I was distracted by another one. So I never have thought of it as sticking with it because for me, um, I have the best job in the world and (laughs) I come in and I work with brilliant people and it's very exciting. So you've had a lot of, you know, very well-known chefs train at River Cafe. It is, I would assume the River Cafe is a group process. It's not about star chefs. It's about the, the the entire group of people who work there. Is that your philosophy, or what is your philosophy of River Cafe in terms of how it's run and managed? Oh, yeah, it's totally collaborative in the way we work. I think that the idea of the old, you know, people always say to me, God, being a chef is so hard. And I go, well, being a journalist is hard. Being a lawyer is hard. Being an architect is hard. And a train driver and a being a mother. These are, you know... Working hard is hard, and it's our job to make sure that restaurants and being a chef is not any more grueling because then you don't get the best out of people. And I've worked with Jamie Oliver, Theo Randall, April Broomfield, 
few friendly Woodingston. I can name the people who've come through the River Cafe and have had a fantastic careers and success. But I'd have to say I can name so many brilliant, brilliant chefs who have not, their ambition hasn't been to be on television or to be writing cookbooks, but to be, to come into work to the River Cafe and, and cook. And so I'm very proud of those people as I am all the people. When people leave the River Cafe, I always say, as long as you keep cooking. And as you know, and I think that they've left the River Cafe, not just with, as I say, how to cut a piece of Parmesan, but with the values that we believe in of um, kindness and patience and openness. And that, that for me is how to run a kitchen. It's very, very important. Is there a moment, was there a moment early on at the River Cafe where it, it, you realized what it was going to become as you as you transform from being lunch only to dinner and then all of a sudden the concept came alive. But was there a moment when that really happened for you? I mean, I think there was a big change when we published our first cookbook. And, you know, we thought only the people who ate in the River Cafe would buy it. And then it sold so many copies. And, and then we had press and people really recognized us as a restaurant. And, you know, when, I suppose we got the rec- international recognition uh, when there was a piece in the New York Times and the L.A. Times. And people started coming to us when there was a piece in the New Yorker, which is in the book, about us being the best Italian restaurant in Europe, which got us in trouble with the Italians. <laughs> But mostly, I think, we were so focused on what we were doing at the moment that, uh, as I said, we kind of grew with the restaurant. So I think, you know, we're always growing, and, and so that's been very exciting for us. Ruthie, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. And, uh, and best of luck with the next 30 years. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Chef Ruth Rogers. Her cookbook is River Cafe 30, Simple Italian Recipes from an Iconic Restaurant. You can subscribe and listen to Milk Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Just subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded right to your phone. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will be taking your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Hi, Sarah. You ready for a new batch of questions? I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Greg from Savannah, Georgia. Oh, oh love Savannah, Georgia. All I have to do, you know, if Sarah's not in a good mood, I just say Savannah. Oh, I just love it. Well, good. Then hopefully she likes my question. Okay. And what is your question? Well, a few months back, I found myself solo out to dinner and decided to go to Carmelina's in uh, Little Italy. Okay. And the only seat I could get was sitting at the chef's table watching the chefs. That's always a good place to sit. It was fantastic. Being a home chef myself, I loved it. They would put a lot of olive oil in a pan and then cook it over extremely high commercial stove heat. And my question is, how did they not burn the protein? And is this a good idea to cook over really high heat? Well, if your objective is to get a good crust and sear on a piece of steak, for example, sure. The best way to do that at home is use cast iron, preheat it over medium-low for 10 minutes. Cast iron retains heat well, but it doesn't conduct heat evenly. It takes more time to heat up. But once it gets hot, it will hold on to that heat better than an aluminum pan, for example. 
And the reason you right. use a fair amount of oil, I assume, if you look at the bottom of a pan, the interior, and the piece of meat, the meat's never flat. So by having a fair amount of oil in the pan, you'll cook the entire surface of that meat fairly evenly. The oil will get hot and conduct that heat to the meat. So you'll have you know, a nice, evenly cooked, seared piece of meat. That's probably why they use the oil. They cook those steaks at ridiculously high temperatures. But the point is, they don't cook them for long, so they get the really nice crust on the outside. And then you can still have it rare on the inside. So I think okay. the fact, it just wasn't on all that long, really. Right, it wasn't. I mean, actually, what they did was they cooked over the very high heat for probably two or three minutes, flipping it if it was small pieces of protein. Then they put in the sauce and turned down the heat some and let it go for another three or four minutes. And then they would add any other uh, vegetables or garnish or whatnot at the very end. There's another trick. You can take a low oven, like a 250 oven, put the steak, if it's, that's what you're cooking, on a rack in the, on a baking sheet in the oven, bring it up to about 90 degrees internal so it's pre-cooked a little bit, and then mm-hmm. finish it in a scorching hot cast iron pan. Right. In the inside, it'll be cooked, but the outside gets a nice crust, or you can throw it on the grill. The good news is then you have much more of whatever internal temperature you want from top to bottom. Well, thank you so much. Yep. Okay. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jenny from Mooresville, North Carolina. How can we help you? I'm thrilled to be able to say that you have both taught me so much about feeding my family and to say thank you. Well, thank you. Oh, make our nice. day. Thank you. Well, I do need your help, though, because okay. although I've learned a lot, and uh, I'm a pretty good home cook. Pork chops, they are my arch nemesis. You mean they come out dry? They come out terrible. You know, you stick it in a pan, and it either comes out really dry and overdone or underdone in the middle, and you stick a thermometer in one place, and it says one thing, and you stick it in another right. place, and it says another thing. And What internal temperature are you trying to cook the pork chop to? 165 is what recommended, Uh-oh. right? No, no that used to be because uh, of trichinosis issues. Actually, the government recommends 145, but most of us go to 140 because of carryover cooking time. Right. That is what I've been looking at, taking it out at about 140, 145, and letting it sit. But, you know, you stick the thermometer in one place, and it says 180, and you stick it in someplace else, and it says 130. So You've got to stick it in sideways. Do it sideways yeah. like a steak and try to get in the center, and you, you take the lowest reading as the reading you take. But you, okay. you shouldn't be getting 180. The problem with pork is 30 years ago when everyone said fat will kill you, so they took all the fat out of pork. So it's so lean it's almost inedible. So brining it will help. You can brine a, a chop for about an hour and a half or so, two hours, dry it off, and go ahead and cook it. And that'll help it retain moisture as it cooks. That'll make a big difference. So many pork products already seem to be pre-brined, like they're in a solution right. of some sort. And, Which we don't like. You know, it makes them very spongy. Like, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I avoid that like the plague. I agree okay, with you. Okay, well, I have another suggestion. Pan sear the pork chops, sear both sides, take the skillet with a mitt, throw it in a very low oven and let it finish slowly. And that way you can get it to just the right temperature and you won't overcook it. How long would I cook it in the oven after searing it on both sides? I'd say 15, 20 minutes at 250. And then stick in the thermometer sideways, you Mm -hmm. know. Take tongs and pick it up and then put the thermometer in. I would check it after 10 minutes. 
and also okay. do let it rest so that it can right. all the juices mm-hmm. can redistribute. And take it out at 140. Yeah. Correct. The other thing I was going to say, a shortcut is to just sprinkle both sides of the pork chop with salt directly, kosher salt, and let it yeah. sit for one hour at room temperature. And then uh, pat it dry before you go and sear it and then finish it in the oven. And I find that even that yeah, helps. That, that helps. Yeah. There's one other recipe you could take a tenderloin. It's called pinchos moronos, which is a tapas from Spain. Cut it into bite-sized pieces. Use a spice yeah. rub on it with some salt. Let it sit about 15 minutes. And then just cook it very quickly in a skillet. Take about five minutes. And then you can finish it with more spice, maybe a little bit of honey and salt. It's 15, 20 minutes start to finish, yeah. and then you can serve that with rice or however you want to serve it. Is that a recipe that you can it's a find recipe. in Milk well, Street? Actually, yeah, I, yes. I do have a recipe that's very similar to that. You take the tenderloin and cut it into the medallions, and yeah. tenderloin is usually my go-to because pork chops don't play well. And I will probably just stick to pork tenderloin. Yeah, I mean, there's so many ways to cook those. You can saute it, you can braise it, you can grill it. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Take care. Thank Thanks, Jenny. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Isha Sumner, author of the forthcoming book, Wega. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it you know I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like man this beer is good (laughs) there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. 
<laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it, like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today I chat with Isha Sumner. In 2013, Sumner and her sister visited Honduras, to document and collect traditional Garifuna recipes. Today, Isha is a caterer, also author of the forthcoming cookbook, Wega. Isha, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Chris? I'm good. Uh, and I'm ready for a history lesson. Uh, yes. So <laughs> uh, if we could go back to the uh, 18th century and the beginnings of the Garifuna culture. Uh, so yes. where do these people come from? Where do they end up? Uh, what happened? Okay, so um, let's go a little bit, a little back to the 17th century. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, the Garifuna people, as um, history has recorded, were a group of African slaves from West Africa coming into slavery to the new countries. And um, uh, what happened was that there was a shipwreck, uh, apparently, that took place. Somewhat of a revolt happened inside the ship. And this happened near the island of St. Vincent and the Grenadines. So apparently, after that happened, the people that were coming to be enslaved found themselves free. So they migrated into the closest island, which is the island of St. Vincent. And they eventually intermingled with the native Carib Indians that existed at the time, which were, we know them now as the Arawak Indians. And from the intermingling of these two people, a nation was birthed. 
And um, this is the Garifuna Nation, which is known now to be in Honduras. But there were also, as part of the history, a lot of mingling and treating with, um, with the English and the French. There were a lot of alliances happening there. But eventually, the Garifunas uh, signed a treaty which made them not be necessarily welcomed uh, by the English on the island of St. Vincent. And then they were eventually exiled and taken to the coast of Honduras. So, so tell me about the language now. So the, does it go all the way back to the Arawak language? Is it a mixture of lots of different languages? Talk about that. The language is definitely rooted in the Arawak language. There is, you know, a little bit of French. It's like a mixture of all these languages that whomever the Garifuna had an encounter with in the island of St. Vincent, they were able to take elements from their cultures and actually adopt it as their own. So, so, so do me a favor. So count from one to ten in Garifuna. Okay, so one, be, aba, biama, urua, gadru, sengu, sisi, sedu, vidu, nefu, dis. Dis. Well, okay, there you go. You go. <laughs> yeah. One of the things about the language that I would love to share with you, too, is that the female Garifuna has a different way of expressing what she's saying hmm. than the male Garifuna. So, so what are some examples for men and women? So an example would be for men, they will refer to a woman as a wurito. And me as a, as a woman, I will refer to another woman as hinyaruto. Hinyaruto. I, I, it's not expected of me as a woman to refer to another woman as wurito because I will be taking on the, the masculine part of the language. And do those two words have a translation or are they just different ways of expressing the word woman? It's a different way of expressing the word woman. Okay. The woman would refer to a man as eyerile, and the men will refer to another man as wugurile. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very strong and very expressive. Well, yeah, sometimes I wonder when women refer to men, they're just saying idiot, right? I mean, that's what, yeah, <laughs> that, that's the English translation. In Garifuna would be, bide wataule. Okay, see, I, kn- I knew you had a word for that. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, so the staples, let's talk about the ingredients in the, in the Garifuna cuisine. Coconut, cassava, bananas. What, what are some of the, the, the staples here? Well, the core of the Garifuna cuisine is based on coconut. Then it goes into, uh, let's say, cumin. It goes into black pepper. It goes into fresh-grown basil. And Garifuna people love a lot of green pepper hmm. because it has a certain aroma and a taste to it. And it combines so well with, um, with coconut that, that I would say that's like a staple. And a Garifuna woman hardly ever will cook without garlic because it's, it's not only like a cooking for great taste, but it's also you're thinking, what, what are the healing 
elements of this thing. So here is garlic. You know, it's an antibiotic and it will make the food taste better and smell better, but also it will take care of your stomach. So you get out of bed in the morning as Griffina. Are you very <laughs> different than if you get out of bed just so that, you know, New England point of view? Well, I would say from the Griffina standpoint, food is about family. Food is about coming together. Food is about celebration and sharing the kitchen with other women. It's usually a communal experience um, in the Garifuna culture where women get together. And this has been, you know, from my grandmother would, would say since morning, you know, since long time ago, that women gather, you know, to, to make cassava, they sing, they dance, they tell stories as they're, they're making foods. They, there's a romantic sort of like, um, uh, I would say, family gathering and a spirituality to it. I mean, my husband, you know, he's from Connecticut. He's Anglo. And um, he, he even tells me, like, you have so many family members because in the, in the beginning of the relationship, it was sort of like a Greek wedding <laughs> in my kitchen, you know, like loud music, people laughing, people just helping one another in the kitchen. And at first he was taken aback by this whole thing, like, wait a minute, who are all these women in my kitchen? I married one of the, these women. <laughs> Mar- married every, all of the women, yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's turn to a few recipes. Hudutu, uh, fish stew. Could could you just explain how the how that's made? And that's I, I assume a central dish here. Hudutu, I would say, is definitely the central part of the Garifuna food. It's the heart that makes the kitchen beat, and the way that. Hudutu is made traditionally. I think Hudutu tends to not only create that feel for home for us, I think it brings back great memories because again, like I explained to you before, usually the cooking is communal. So Hudutu, you know, your grandmother or you as a kid will be sent to the store to buy the plantains and any other kids that are in the home will actually help peel the plantains. The, the grandmother was usually where we get our cooking tips from. There are the matriarchs of the Garifuna people. They will be, you know, cleaning the fish, seasoning it, browning the fish. And of course, the men at this point are not necessarily in the kitchen, but their task eventually will come once the plantains are already cooked, it's the man's job to actually mash the plantains. And then after the plantains are mashed, then everyone comes together to eat. So, so this is, just ex- describe the dish. So this is a fish stew. So this is a fish stew with coconut milk, right? Okay. It's coconut soup. It's a browned fish it's basil, it's garlic, it's fresh grounded black pepper, it's green pepper. And the mashed plantains 
are usually a mix of green plantains and yellow plantains mashed together. And traditionally, when I was little, the hudutu was eaten by hand. It was something that you, you know, you take a piece of the mashed plantains, you put it in the soup, you get a piece of fish, and you like put it all together and whoop, directly to the mouth. And oh my goodness, those were my happy days. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. When I was in Senegal a few months ago, uh, eating with your hands is common Mm-hmm. which, of course, is West Africa. Uh, but also when they taste uh, food, they put a dab on their, on the t- on their hand and, uh, they, yes, and they taste. Yes. You do that too in, in yes, Burfina? Yes, we do that yeah. all the time. It's like a dab. You put it from, the, from where you're cooking to the palm of your hand. Right. And then mm, like you taste it. Mm, 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 mm. It needs a little more of this. Well, you know, I thought that was, when I first saw it, that was, <laughs> I went, what are you doing? And, and then I, I did it. And it's such a, when you taste it off your own skin, it's a different way yes. of tasting that's better than tasting it off a spoon. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And and it it informs you what else you need. Right. It's sort of like you take the time in, in the, you know, with your palate and kind of like taste, 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 taste. And you're like, your brain tells you, I'm still missing this. I'm still missing that, you know. Now, you also have a... Uh, a rice, sweet rice dish. Is it bimakakule? Bimakakule tenamu. What is that? It sounds great. Well, bimakakule translates to creamy sweet. What it is, uh, you take just regular white rice. We then use brown uh, granulated or we melt it ourselves. And this is um, panela. Uh-huh. which is granulated brown sugar right. with coconut milk. And then you add your cinnamon, hint of nutmeg, salt, and the main ingredient in the bimekakule is ginger. Oh, that sounds good. Yes. So all these uh, flavors combine and they release... Because as you cook the rice, all these flavors are released into the rice grain and once it's nicely cooked, you let it cool off. Traditionally, the bimekakule is cooked in the afternoons. Like my grandmother would cook it in the in the afternoon, um, slow cooked because you cannot rush bimekakule because it will get burnt. It, or sometimes you'll get like hard rice, but you want it to cook evenly. So it has to be cooked very slowly, preferably in an iron cast pot. Now you you have your own catering company, uh, uh, but if if I if I wanted to, let's say I was in New York, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and I wanted to go, is there a Griffin a restaurant? Are there bakeries? How would I get to taste this food? Okay, so I always tell my friends that ask me, how do I get to taste this food, Isha? And when I was living in New York, I had what we you know, um, my church called a dinner party, which we we gathered every Wednesday. And when I started working on the cookbook, I decided that, you know what, I'm just going to incorporate tastings during these dinner parties. Because most of my friends from Brooklyn or throughout New York, they don't necessarily know anything about this food. 
which is the reason why also I was inspired to be able to create the cookbook. So that's how I started this whole thing in New York City, you know, just introducing the food to my friends and having dinner parties in my backyard and and just, you know, asking my friends, could you please be honest with me? Do you like it? And they're like, oh, my God, I can't wait to come back next Wednesday. <laughs> What's the name of the cookbook? The name of the cookbook is Wega, which translates to Let's Eat. Wega, Let's Eat. Well, I'm going to have to invite myself over. Yes. And I'll, I'll do the mashing <laughs> of the plantains. How about that? Yes, absolutely. And you're going to be sweating, <laughs> but that's going to make you hungry. So you're going to be ready for the meal once it's ready. Aisha, it's been an enormous pleasure. And I, I can't wait for the cookbook. And I can't wait to taste the food. Thank you so much to you. That was Isha Sumner, whose forthcoming cookbook is Wega. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, spaghetti al limone. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, many years ago, I went to the Deluxe Diner in the south end of Boston, and I had a pasta dish with lemon. First time I ever had that. And I, I wasn't quite sure. My mind wasn't made up. But many years later, as in a few months ago, we actually made a dish here, spaghetti alla limone, which was delicious. So you obviously did something different with it, and I thought it was terrific. So what is this dish? So this is a really simple dish. It does not have very many ingredients. It's typically what you have in your house already. It comes together super fast. It's got nice, bold, bright flavors. It's perfect for a weeknight, especially in the summer. It's really light and has a lot of strong flavor. It's something that you would love because I know you like simple recipes with a lot of bold flavor. This is the perfect one. So it's got pasta and lemon. I got that far. What else is it at? So the sauce starts with garlic and red pepper flakes. We saute in a little bit of butter, add some dry white wine, and then you cook your pasta. So make sure that you don't cook your pasta all the way to al dente. You want to be just shy of al dente because the pasta is actually going to finish cooking in the sauce. So until the pasta sticks in your teeth? <laughs> is, is that just before al dente? <laughs> exactly. You want to see a little bit of the core of the okay. pasta when you break it open. You want to make sure to reserve some of the pasta water here. Some recipes use cream. We're using just butter and the pasta cooking water. The butter is going to add the richness you would get from cream, and the pasta water is going to thicken the sauce with the starch from the pasta. So you put that in the skillet with the sauce. All cooks together for about two to three minutes, uh, just until that water is absorbed. And then we need to add the lemon. So you want to add the lemon off the heat. That's going to keep the lemon bright and citrusy. And we're using three tablespoons of juice and two tablespoons of zest here. But that's really up to personal preference. If you want it more lemony, add more. Less, add less. You finish it off with just a sprinkle of Parmesan cheese that adds some saltiness and kind of balances those bright citrus flavors here. Super simple. Comes together so fast and great for a summertime dinner. Thank you so much, Lynn. Spaghetti al limone takes about 15 minutes start to finish and great for the summer. Thank you. You're welcome, Chris. You can find this recipe at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. 
a hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take a few more of your calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, how are you? Chris, I'm great, and I'm ready to go. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? Hi, uh, this is Phyllis. I'm from Northampton, Massachusetts. Hi, Phyllis. How can we help you today? I have a question about some jam that I make in the summertime. I have a kiwi arbor in my backyard. Ooh, how exotic. It's wonderful. It gives us a lot of shade, which is great, and it produces lots of fruit, which are... The baby kiwis, so they're the size of grapes, and they're not fuzzy like New Zealand kiwis. And I usually have so much fruit that I don't eat it all, and I make jam out of it. But I don't have the equipment to do canning, so I just pack everything into clean jars and refrigerate it. 
and I give a lot away, but I usually end up with quite a few jars. So I'm always a little nervous after several months as to how long I should expect the jam to last in the refrigerator. Do you have somebody you really don't like? You could <laughs> give, g- give them a jar first. I mean, this is a refrigerator jam. Yeah. Part of the answer is how much sugar you're using per quart of fruit. The more sugar, the more preservative there. The rule I used to use for refrigerator jams was like a few weeks, you know, three to four weeks. Yeah. I think when you're talking about months, you're in risky territory. I think so, too. So oh, if really? Gonna, okay. Yeah. If you're going to keep it around, even in the refrigerator, I would uh, uh-huh. just get a big, you know, it costs you 30, 40 bucks just buy a big pot and the canning stuff and the can it. I don't can because I'm just sure I'm going to do something wrong and kill somebody. But I, I don't think the canning equipment is all that expensive or all that complicated if you just follow right. the instructions. Well, you're just putting jars in boiling water. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. I and mean, it's not pressure canning. Yeah. It's just you need a really huge pot for that. Yes. I do. just don't have one like that and not a lot of space to keep one like that. So, Are the jams really well set when they come up? or? Yeah, it- they are. What I do is I boil it down until the fruit is really soft. Right. And then I use an immersion blender, uh-huh. and it comes out the consistency of jam. Is it really sweet when you taste it or not? Yeah, it's pretty sweet. It's sugar, lemon juice, and a little water so it doesn't burn. Right. Even so, I think counting on it to last month. for months in the fridge is not a good idea. The other thing is, I wonder if you could just freeze it. Yeah, I could certainly try that. I do think this is one of those things where people say, oh, three weeks, because they want to be safe. I wonder, I mean, (laughs) I don't want to be the first person to taste it after six months, but I wonder in the refrigerator, you know, if there's enough sugar in there, I don't know. I think it's an unanswered question. I wonder if she should reach out to a place like Cornell, an extension service or, you know, the Massachusetts Extension Service, the people that know about these kind of things. The Massachusetts Life Extension Service? No, no. See how long you're going to live if you Gene Anderson always used to talk about that. You just talk to, you know, people who know about these kind of things. I think it's ratio of sugar to other... each pound of kiwi fruit, I put in three quarters of a pound of sugar. I think that we are not experts here. I I would be very nervous saying that it would be okay to leave it in your fridge for months. I would reach out to a professional. Okay, I'll try that. Thanks so much. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? Hi, this is Terry calling from Honolulu, Hawaii. Ooh, oh, that's the first Hawaii we're call. jealous. Sarah, I'm could you ring jealous. the bell, please? Oh, very exciting. <laughs> how can we help you? Yes, how can we help you? <laughs> well, I've been listening to um, you folks as well as, you know, following with the sous vide cooking trend. And I'm just curious, you know, we had so much concern about keeping plastic wrap away from our food and not heating food in plastic containers and things like that. What is your take on the um, cooking when it involves that vacuum sealing in, you know... In a plastic plastic bag. You mean the sous vide thing? Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good question. That's an excellent question. I've always... Yeah, that's bothered me too. I mean, the only thing I can say is sous vide, you're not cooking things at very high temperature. So... Chicken is cooked to 160 or 65. A steak might be 120 or 125. So that's, it's not like you're at very high temperature, but I think there are BPA free, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure there are. Yeah. So that's what I would Uh do. uh I'm not a huge fan of sous vide, so I can't. Well, I got that feeling from one of your recent. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Chris is either, right? Well, look, I mean, you can, I just did this. (laughs) Except for uh, cooking eggs. I just did this for my son recently. I just took a couple of chicken breasts and put them in water that was 170 degrees and, you know, got them up to 165 and let it cook off heat for a while. 
It was gently cooked. It was perfectly poached. With it the was, same effect. But I didn't have to put it in a bag, and I didn't need the circulator. Now, yes, I had to check it out a couple times with a thermometer. But, you know, you can do you that with chicken. Approximate it, yeah, without yeah. putting it in a bag. And you can actually add a little soy sauce to it and some other things to add some flavor. But that's not hard to do. I think sous vide, as long as you finish it over high heat in a skillet or a grill, like a steak, it perfectly cooks the food. You can get a phone call or run out of the house for half an hour and come back. It's not overcooked, no, which is true. great. The new sous vide wands are 100 bucks, 120 bucks. They circulate the water, and you can preset the temperature, of course. They're not hard to store because they're fairly small. So they make sense for yeah, that. Yeah, I just don't like just the don't texture of yeah. the meat, even when you sear it afterwards. I just find the meat, I, you know, it's funny. I've gotten used to chewing. So I sort of miss a little bit well, of that Well, in 20 years chew. when your teeth fall out, you'll, you'll be, be, gumming, be gumming your chicken. I'll be back to sous vide. You'll be but back anyway, to Any rate, to answer your question, I know there are food saver bags that are BPA-free. So I think mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. just Google that and you'll I, I find think them. one of them is Jardins, J-A-R-D-E-N-S. By the way, try that. Jardins food saver bags. Okay. okay. See yes. if they have. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks All for right. calling. Thanks. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. Spanish chorizo sausage is a powerhouse ingredient, so while it's great on its own, we like to use it as a subtle flavoring as well. Here's a tip. Process three to four ounces of chopped sausage in a food processor until finely chopped about a minute. Then add a stick of softened butter and process until very well blended another 30 seconds. Now force that mixture through a fine meshed strainer and store in an airtight container in the refrigerator indefinitely. This butter is great on everything from bruschetta and vegetables to rice pasta and even a grilled cheese sandwich. You can find this recipe at MillStreetRadio.com. Next up, I chat with wine expert Stephen Muse about his favorite sparkling wines for summer. Stephen, how are you? Good, Chris. You're smiling. <laughs> uh, you have something bubbly here, evidently. And I'm going to get to drink some of it, so yes, I'm in a good mood, too. You are indeed. So what we've got, Chris, here are four sparkling wines from our shelves. These are what we call... European regional sparkling wines to distinguish them from champagne. We're talking about wines that sell for under $25. And we love them for the warm weather, of course, because they're fun to take out, chill down, take out on the back porch or the backyard, and drink as an aperitif or have with a light snack. Or as the main course. (laughs) It's the main course. Depending on what kind of day you had. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. We're going to taste the Cremant first. So that's C R E with an accent, M-A-N-T. And these are regional sparkling wines from France. And they get this designation because the amount of bubble, the pressure in the bottle is a little bit lower. They're a little more casual. And you will find Cremont made in Burgundy, Cremont de Bourgogne, in the Loire Valley, Cremont de Loire, in Alsace, Cremont d'Alsace. These are the most frequently encountered. And they tend to be bright, and quite dry and lovely and often very, very good value. Uh, this is uh, interesting. The bubbles are small. Mm-hmm. It's not super effervescent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not sweet. And it has a very dry finish, almost a bitter finish. It would go actually very well with food. It's very dry. Yes. So that is the Cremon category. We're going to talk about cava next. Cava is known as the sparkling wine of Spain. You really want to be aiming for the stuff that's made in Catalonia. This is its ancestral homeland. Comes in white or in pink. We're drinking a white now. And this is an estate cava. This is under $20, 
a kava made by a single guy working the farm all by himself, all a state fruit, and it's really, really beautifully done. Now, kava has a distinctive flavor and aroma that not everybody is keen on. I've always liked it very much. This is totally different than the first one. It's softer. Mm -hmm. It does not have a bitter finish to it. It's not that effervescent either, like the first one, but it has almost a vegetal taste. It has another flavor to it. Some people describe it as earthy. Yeah. It's definitely softer, isn't it? And broader on yeah. the palate. Yeah. It's yeah. a bigger flavor. It's, it's something you almost drink if you were thirsty. Not as austere as the cremon. All right, cava. I mean, the cava is almost a beverage. Frequently in our store, people come in and say, I'm looking for a bottle of Prosecco, and they're beginning to use Prosecco in the same way that people for a long time said champagne, meaning, generically, a sparkling wine. But Prosecco is a distinctive category all its own. It's native to northern Italy, the Veneto, so this is the area sort of between Venice and Verona, and somewhat north of that. So Prosecco is a little bit like Cava in the sense that there are these industrial-scale producers, you can buy Prosecco for, you know, 11 or $12 a bottle, but it's really not very good, and it's much better to spend a little more to get a beautifully made Prosecco. This is made with all organic fruit. It's made by the Adami family, and I just love it. A different thing altogether, right, Chris? It's more effervescent. Mm -hmm. um, it fills the mouth. It doesn't have that slightly odd earthy mm -hmm. flavor from the uh, kava. Mm -hmm. It's more like champagne, I think, than the other mm -hmm. two. It has a little acidity. I mean, it has a little bit of dryness at the mm -hmm. end. It's like an everyman champagne. I mean that in the best sense of the word. It's got some of the best characteristics of champagne, yeah. mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem to have the flaws sometimes. Well, I think it's interesting that you describe it that way, Chris, because champagne and Prosecco do have something kind of important in common, and that is this notion of a little addition of sugar when the wine is ready to be shipped to take the edge off the acidity and to give the wine a little bit more volume and breadth. Um, I think people would be stunned to know the amount of sugar that particularly goes into the most inexpensive Prosecco. It's a lot. You may not actually taste the sweetness, but it does have the effect of giving it a satisfying and voluminous feel on the palate. The better quality the grapes at the beginning, the less sugar they really need to put in to make a balanced wine. And this is one of the reasons why I really do encourage people to be more inclined to spend something above that 10 or $12 mark for Prosecco to get something that's more well-made and it's going to be so much more pleasing and satisfying. Now, you mentioned the pet nap and you had that scurrilous little <laughs> smile as if, if you were onto something extremely trendy. So why don't we try that? Okay. Pet nat. Nat. Well, nap, whatever. <laughs> See, I'm not, it just shows I'm not trendy. All right. Pet nat is short for pétillon naturel. Pétillon means effervescent. It means very lightly effervescent. Typically, a wine that is pétillon is even under less pressure in the bottle than something that's cremant. It's a category that a lot of natural winemakers seem to be moving toward. Pet nats are made with a single fermentation, part of it which takes place in a fermentation vat and then is continued in a sealed bottle. So it's different from champagne. Not two fermentations, but one. 
And what we often get is something really dry, really brisk, lowish alcohol. This is about 11 degrees of alcohol, super dry. And, so and a high degree would be 14 to 15 percent. So this is very yes, low. Yes, yes. So I, I just tasted it. I have to say that it has a very strong flavor to it, almost like a smoky artichoke mm -hmm. or something. It's got a very distinctive smokiness. It is a little smoky. It's it? smoky. Mm -hmm. yeah. But also a little lemony. Okay, so the Pet Nat, and these run, what, 15 to 20 dollars a bottle? Yeah, they never get very expensive. The Cremant, the Cava, the Prosecco, the Pet Nat. You know, you want to be paying probably somewhere between $15 and maybe the low 20s. And they're huh. very, very trendy right now. Well, that's good. Well, that's one, why you've one, never one, heard one, of them. One, once a hippie, always a hippie. <laughs> so we have the Cava from Spain. We have the Cremant from France. We have Prosecco from Italy. And we have the Petion Naturel from everywhere. Thank you, Stephen. You're welcome, Chris. That was wine expert Stephen Muse. You know, earlier in the show, I spoke to Ruth Rogers about the River Cafe. The River Cafe is turning 30 years old, and that got me thinking about change in the food world. Some chefs stick with it, Alice Waters, Eric Repair, Ruth Rogers, and Freddie Girardet, to name just a few. They didn't go through phases, start a franchise fast food empire, or cook at Las Vegas or Disney. They just kept doing what they loved to do. Perhaps we should call those types of chefs chefs and leave off the adjective celebrity. They did it for love, not for fame and fortune, and that's the best reason to do anything. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you do want to learn more about Milk Street, please head to our website, 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our TV show, or order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.